Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. A very special episode of the podcast this week. It's our 2016 M&A predictions episode. And joining me to give us her predictions on the five most likely deals to happen in 2016 is Bloomberg gadfly M&A columnist Brooke Sutherland. Brooke, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, of course, the holiday season is is upon us, and in honor of the 12 days of Christmas or the eight nights of Hanukkah, I was thinking we could do a number-based theme today. So, Brooke has selected, drumroll please, five possible deals for 2016, Brooke's bold predictions. Uh, and we'll count down those five in just a minute. But first, Brooke recently wrote a column for Bloomberg Gadfly. And if you don't know Bloomberg Gadfly, it's Bloomberg's new editorial platform. It's online. You should all check it out. Uh, where Brooke pointed out that 2015, this past year, was a year for superlatives. Brooke, what did you mean by that? I think we saw, first of all, record levels of deal activity when you look at globally all industries. But we've also seen you know, record deals in specific industries, the biggest drug deal with Pfizer Allergan, the biggest food deal with Kraft Heinz, the biggest beer deal with AB InBev and SAB Miller. So we were just breaking records really everywhere you look. And that kind of raises the question of you know, what is left in 2016, because we've seen so many mega deals. And in a lot of these industries, there's just not that many big deals left. So what should we expect for 2016, at least broadly speaking? Should we expect 2016 to be on par with 2015? I certainly don't think deals are going away anytime soon. When you look at the main drivers of consolidation in 2015, it was a search for growth because organic growth is really hard to come by these days and, you know, free, relatively free access to the debt markets. And neither of those is going to be going away. I mean, growth is still very hard to come by. And for a lot of companies, the only way you can get it is by doing acquisitions. And even if the Fed raises rates in December, we're not talking about a major lift here. And so it should still be relatively easy for companies that want to, to access debt for acquisitions. So without getting into the specific deals, which we'll get into in a minute, at least from a sector standpoint, are there certain sectors that are more likely to have some of these big deals than others for 2016? Sure. I mean, when you look at where the big deals have happened, in a lot of those it's going to be relatively impossible to do more big deals. Like take the health insurance industry. We saw two of the industry's biggest deals ever there with Anthem and Cigna and Humana and Aetna. Those deals are going to face a tough enough time as it is getting regulatory approval. So seeing any further consolidation in that industry is going to be very difficult. The biggest player there is United Health, And you've got to think that regulators are not going to look too fondly on United Health getting even bigger when you've got these other players already getting larger. Same thing in the beer industry. SAB Miller, AB InBev is the biggest deal you can do there. And, you know, the only other big targets out there are Heineken or Carlsberg. Neither of them looks particularly interested in selling. And it's hard to see who would really be the buyer, given that AB InBev, SAB Miller can't really do much more. So most of the beer company acquisitions are going to be targeting smaller craft brewers, which is really where the growth is. And I know we've seen that same regulatory theme among cable companies now, because one of the most, one of the busiest sectors this year and really last year too uh, has been U.S. cable, where we've seen Time Warner Cable get bought by Charter and Cablevision get bought by Altice, and of course Comcast tried to buy Time Warner Cable, uh, and we've seen a few other smaller deals. Bright House, the sixth largest cable company, was a part of that Charter Time Warner Cable deal. At this point, I would imagine there are just there aren't any more companies to get acquired, and it's not like Comcast could go out and 
by charter at this stage, regulators would never allow that. Definitely. Yeah. And the same in U.S. wireless, where we almost saw Timo and Sprint get together at the end of 2013, early 2014. But regulators basically told Sprint, we're never going to allow this deal, and Sprint dropped that pursuit. So, mm-hmm. so maybe that's sort of the big theme, which is one of the reasons we may not see as many big deals in 2016 is regulators. Definitely. I mean, you've got to think that those people in those agencies are just a little overworked at this point after all of these mega deals, but I think it, it is going to make it much harder to see big deals. It doesn't mean we won't get any. There are still industries where we really haven't had the mega deal yet. What are some of those? So the biggest one in industrials, apart from GE's wind down of GE Capital, is Norfolk Southern Canadian Pacific. And that's an ongoing situation. I think Norfolk Southern just came out on Friday and said that they were going to be rejecting Canadian Pacific's bid. Canadian Pacific has sort of hinted it might be willing to raise the offer. So that's an ongoing situation that we could see play out. Similarly, in the chemical space, the biggest one there uh, is the Syngenta situation, which I think we're kind of in a wait-and-see mode on that. So it's it puts us in a situation where, from a sector standpoint, at least, it seems like, okay, there are some, like you just mentioned, where we haven't seen sort of the big deal. There are others maybe where regulators are going to stand. Pat, are there any macroeconomic trends that are likely? You mentioned the potential rising of interest rates. Are mm-hmm. there other ones that may make 2016 more or less likely more or less likely to be like 2015. Sure. I think the other big one is the growth. I mean, for a lot of these companies, they're just not growing the way that they used to. And really, the only way that they can find growth is by taking over competitors and, you know, taking out all the costs and then building up your scale. And so, you know, I think if growth were to come back in a really big way, maybe these companies wouldn't feel as compelled to do these deals. But especially when you get up into kind of the higher levels. I mean, these are legacy companies that just naturally aren't going to be growing as much anymore. Look at Dell EMC. That's an example of a lack of growth there. And yet another deal that was the biggest, going back to your superlative, the biggest tech deal of all time, Dell EMC. And that trumped uh, Avago Broadcom, which was a merger we saw earlier this year, two semiconductor companies, which had been the biggest tech deal. Yeah, I think ever. it held that title for what, like a few months, a few months. maybe at most. <laughs> so, and that might be one, at least technology, uh, before we get into your top five. Uh, the technology might be an industry where we could see another big deal or two, I think at least, because we haven't seen that many big deals in technology, even with those two, which were the biggest ever. There are still a lot of large technology companies. They have so much money Google, Facebook, Amazon. And Facebook bought WhatsApp a couple of years ago, but really was quiet in 2015. And so was Google, and so was Amazon. The Apple, too. Apple doesn't do a lot of M&A, period. But we're seeing all these companies, so much money, uh, and they haven't done any M&A. Exactly. And I think the tech industry is one where regulators are not as much of a concern because there's so many different industries within tech. You know, Dell EMC is very different from Avago Broadcom. So you can have more big deals in those industries without tipping the scales as far as regulators go. One thing we are seeing right now is uh, Yahoo's, you know, going through the process of figuring out whether or not they're going to sell. But that one probably wouldn't be one of the biggest deals of all time, because it's probably unlikely that Yahoo would sell its entire company, which would be a big deal if it sold everything, meaning Yahoo's stake in Alibaba, plus Yahoo's stake in Yahoo Japan, plus its internet business, then you're getting to be a $40 billion deal or so. Uh, But what's more likely to happen there if they go the sale route is doing sort of piecemeal acquisition, so you wouldn't see one 
big one. And I think the reported size there is something around two billion to four billion, depending of on its who you internet ask. Business. And, yeah, for exactly. just the core business. Exactly. Yeah. So so that that sort of barely hits the radar at all. Uh, okay, Brooke. So you've got your top five most likely deals for 2016. Now, some of these may be deals that were rumored to happen in 2015 and just didn't happen, or maybe even attempted to happen in 2015 and didn't happen. And other ones are just sort of your own ideas of what is likely to make sense. So let's go. Number five, what do you have for us? Number five, I picked out Mylon Perigo Part 2, but not with each other. So if you remember, Mylon was trying to buy Perigo. Perigo was not exactly thrilled about that, and their shareholders voted down the takeover. What, what are Mylon and Perigo for people that aren't They are both uh, drug makers. So this was part of the huge drug-making deal boom that we saw in 2015. This was one that didn't actually happen. But now both companies could potentially be looking to do deals. Mylon is obviously looking for a replacement to Perigo since that deal didn't happen. And Perigo has said it wants to do deals of its own. It was, you know, in acquiring mode before Mylon came along and that kind of put a halt to its plans. And what is sort of the overall thesis for why these two companies wanted to come together? Or maybe even more broadly, why drug makers have been coming together? Well, I think there's a number of different reasons. Uh, a lot of the drug maker deal making that we've seen was driven by taxes. We saw a lot of inversions in this industry in particular, where companies buy a foreign company and use that acquisition to move their domicile abroad, where the tax rates are much lower. But I think the other part of it is just, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about, looking for growth, looking for ways to restock your pipeline with new drugs, especially as some of the older blockbusters go off patent. So I think, you know, one target that's been talked about potentially for both Mylon and Perigo is Endo, which has some interesting products that might be a good fit for either one of those companies. For Mylon, uh, it's been postulated that maybe the company could be interested in Pfizer's generic division if and when that goes up on the block. Pfizer, of course, is buying Allergan. That's another big drug maker deal. Um, and biggest buying, ever. Biggest ever. Yeah. And going back to our superlatives, mm-hmm. um, and buying Allergan would help the company set up its established products business for a sort of separation. And that could be really interesting to my line. Right. We actually talked about that a little bit uh, a couple episodes ago, where this is sort of an interesting scenario with Pfizer and Allergan, where the the idea would be put these companies together only to break them apart, perhaps. It's a know, little a weird, but... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so that's number five. What do you have for us for number four? For number four, I have Nestle and General Mills. Um, so we saw Kraft Heinz, which was the biggest food deal ever, and it was orchestrated by 3G Capital, which are the known kind of cost cutters and disruptors in the food industry. So this is a a group that has basically revolutionized the way that we look at food. They come in with zero-based budgeting, which is basically you start from zero, you have to justify every cost. And that has put a lot of pressure on some of these other food makers to take a look at their business and say, okay, what what should we be doing here to kind of catch up to what 3G is doing? 3G has obviously been doing a lot of deals, Kraft Heinz being, you know, one of the biggest. And I think that could put pressure on other food makers to consolidate as well. Nestle and General Mills have been kind of speculated potential partners for a really long time. And with 3G making the moves that it's making in the food industry, now may be the right time for them to finally consider that. The other possibility in food is maybe looking at Mondelez finally getting together with Pepsi's food business. If you remember, that was what Nelson Peltz was pushing for at one point. Um, Mondelez was the old Kraft, right? Half of the, Yeah, the split off of Kraft, whose name is... You know, a little <laughs> yeah. out there. <laughs> Mondelez, that's just so that's like so un-American. Makes you think of Oreos, right? Totally. Yes, yeah. exactly, right. Um, and, Gourmet you know, Oreos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the logic for Kraft Heinz would be very similar to the logic for, you know, a Pepsi 
food and Mondelez merger, which maybe you know brings that back up into the discussion. Again. And what are we talking about when we're when we're thinking Pepsi food? So Pepsi owns Fritos. They own also Quaker, so like the rice cakes and the oatmeal and that whole part of it. So you think of the soft drinks, but they actually have this whole food business. Very interesting scenario going on there. It's almost like 3G is operating like the Grim Reaper or someone, where it's where it's putting fear into all these food companies that they need to tighten their belts and figure out. All right, if we don't do something. Thing, like someone's going to come after us. Oh, definitely. And shareholders love it, but uh, maybe not so much. It, but maybe not the employees. No, so who much. are losing, what is it, their cheese sticks at uh, Kraft and their, um, I forget what else, <laughs> all their freebies. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really the MO for 3G is to just come in there and slash and burn and cut costs. And yeah, you're right. It, it, it gets to one of sort of the broader themes of MA that we really want to discuss broadly on this podcast, which is some of this stuff, it tends to be very good for shareholders at times. Uh, but not so good for the employees that are involved because either they lose their jobs or they lose perks. All right, number three, what do we have? Comcast T-Mobile. And I know this is kind of your area of expertise, but we were talking earlier about the, the telecommunications industry and how it may be harder for Comcast to buy another sort of cable operator. Obviously, things did not go so well with Time Warner. And so, you know, what something that could make sense that could maybe get past regulators is to push instead into wireless and create this sort of convergence of cable and wireless, kind of what, like, what we're seeing in Europe, where players are pursuing the sort of quad play of different services. Exactly what we talked about last episode uh, with Manu Baigori, who broke the story about Orange and Telecom Italia potentially coming together. There's this broader theme. We've we've seen it in Europe, to your point, Brooke, where mobile and cable are coming together. And, and the idea is to be able to offer your video package and sort of throw it on your phone so you have TV everywhere, which is a concept that U.S. companies have pushed actually for years. But there isn't a single example of a mobile company and a cable company operating as the same company. However, we have seen the first inklings of that a little bit with AT&T buying DirecTV just mm-hmm. this past year, where DirecTV is not a cable company, but it is a TV producer. Uh, and the idea here behind AT&T's purchase of DirecTV was to mesh mobile video with standard video. So the next stage would be, okay, maybe you can add fixed line broadband, which is, of course, really what the cable companies sell these days. I mean, the cable companies are really, in essence, a broadband provider. Cable is almost an out-of-date term. People still get TV and phone from them, but they make all their money and all their profit off broadband, and that's become actually their highest-selling product. That change just happened actually in 2015, where pretty much across the board now, cable companies get more revenue from broadband than they do from TV. However, I will say this. I remember talking to Time Warner Cable's old CEO, Glenn Britt, who passed away uh, a year or two ago, uh, and he told me, this was probably back in 2010, 2011, that he has studied the convergence between mobile and cable extensively, and there was no evidence, in his opinion, that anyone wants the same company to own both phone and cable. In other words, they're used for two different things. Maybe they could have some sort of partnership together. But in his mind, and again, this was like four years ago or so, uh, there was no real justification from a synergy standpoint hmm. to put mobile and cable together. Now, the world has changed quite a bit Sure, yeah, with years. Netflix and everything else, it, it kind of changes the equation. And just the overwhelming use of people watching video on their smartphones. Uh, I mean, it, it, it has gotten to a point now where if he were still alive, he may change his mind on that front. 
But Comcast T-Mobile is probably the most likely scenario if a cable company is going to merge with a mobile company because Charter is probably going to need to digest Time Warner Cable. In fact, there's still a shot that regulators don't even allow that deal to go through. And if that doesn't go through, that'll be an interesting scenario to see what else, if anything, can happen in the U.S. Maybe Altice wants to take another shot at Time Warner. (laughs) Yeah, right. All right, what do we have for number two? Uh, For number two, we have Monsanto Syngenta. Uh, I mentioned this earlier. You know, this is a situation that's kind of a a holdover from this year where Monsanto tried to buy Syngenta and Syngenta pushed back against them. And Syngenta got a lot of pushback from its shareholders on that rejection of Monsanto. A lot of them thought it should have engaged more with the company and, you know, tried to see how far it could take the price and maybe exert a little bit better value. As we know, you know, the commodities market is not a great place right now, and that's true for Syngenta and Monsanto. Um, So now it looks like Syngenta is a little bit more open to a deal. Uh, Bloomberg News broke the news that it's in talks with ChemChina about a possible kind of combination, and Monsanto has said, you know, they'll at least take a look at whether something makes sense with Syngenta. And you've got to think, you know, they they went after it a few times. If it looks like maybe Syngenta is going to be a little bit more open to talks this time around, they've got to take another shot. So what's the logic for this? What's the logic for seed makers coming together? Well, the logic is you've got Monsanto, which is the world's biggest seed company, and Syngenta, which is the biggest pesticide maker. And so if you bring those together, you can sort of, you know, share the different technologies. It makes the seed product better. It makes the pesticide product better. You can learn, you know, how they kind of work together. Is there any sort of regulatory issue in in this world? Sure. Yeah, I think that was a big part of Syngenta's concern was that, you know, there would be regulatory pushback here. And, you know, they wanted to make sure that they were properly compensated for that with a sizable breakup fee. And, you know, that Monsanto had a good plan for how to overcome those. Um, Monsanto had said it'd be willing to divest Syngenta's seed business and, you know, some other assets to get a deal done. So it seems like they're willing to at least try to work toward that. So is that why this is on your list? In other words, is that why you're, you have some confidence that this might actually happen in 2016? I think the reason why I think something could happen is because Syngenta seems a little bit more willing to do a deal. Monsanto's interest in a deal was never in question. It was Syngenta's willingness to engage with them and to do whatever it took to kind of get this done. I do think, you know, there is a price at which it doesn't make sense for Monsanto, and they've been very disciplined in terms of sticking to their guns on price. And so they shouldn't go willy-nilly throwing huge premiums around to try to get this done. But Seems like Syngenta's a little bit more willing to engage, and maybe they can finally hammer something out here. Okay, Brooke, it's time. What's your number one deal for 2016? My number one is Exxon and Adarco. Now, this has been a combination that's been speculated for a very long time, um, and now could be the time when it finally makes sense. We had Anadarko trying and failing to buy Apache. A lot of people thought that was maybe a defensive maneuver on Anadarko's part. Um, you know, what is Anadarko for people? An oil know? explorer, which obviously, you know, oil markets are showing no signs of picking back up. Um, You know, oil is still trading at a very low level. And and we really haven't seen the sort of deal boom that everyone was predicting we would see from oil prices. And I think part of that was there was just still such a disconnect between buyers and sellers, where buyers were looking at the oil market and saying, it's not coming back any soon, you know, you should take a premium. And, you know, the sellers were kind of looking at their stock prices of yesteryear and thinking, hey, maybe we can get back to that if we can just hold on and stick it out. 
I think that tide is turning with oil markets really not picking back up, and we could finally start to see some of those bigger deals that everyone's kind of been waiting for happen. Yeah, that, this one is a fascinating one. I mean, oil is hovering around $40 a barrel these days. And and to your point, that's one of the big macro trends, I think, that has really suppressed uh, M&A in a sector, uh, because these companies have had no clarity, really, on what to expect. And, and that the price of oil dictates their futures enormously. Why does Exxon make sense as the buyer for Anadarko rather than some other company? Well, I think Exxon just has so much cash, too. I mean, it's just sitting on a huge pile of it, and it's in a really good position to capitalize on these great businesses that are out there. Anadarko has very good assets in you know, the shale regions of the United States, and Exxon could do a lot with those. Um, you know, This creates the opportunity to go in and pick up some more of those very profitable when oil is back up uh, regions. Brooke Sutherland, you can tell she's very well-versed in the world of M&A, our Bloomberg gadfly columnist. Brooke, thank you so much for joining us. We will see how many of your 2016 predictions pan out. We'll have to have you on at the end of 2016 so that you can see how I did. Great you can myself. either brag or tell us what you misled <laughs> everyone. Thank you very much for joining us. That's it for this episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed it. You can expect more Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are doing deals real time. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Google Play, or any app you use to listen to podcasts. And take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. Also, follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949 and my colleague Brooke Sutherland at BLSUTH. That would be at BLSUTH. We'll see you next week. Thank you.